0: One day a monk visited, or at least he was a supposed monk, and he came to visit, but he was overcome by desire for Mary. And before he left, sin was committed, and poor Mary was left feeling the awful shame of her guilt. Silently, one day, without speaking to anyone, she left and she went out hoping never to be discovered again. Her uncle Abram was greatly grieved when he discovered that his niece was gone. And after two years, he discovered where she was and exactly what she did. Welcome again to Let the Bible Speak. This is Pastor Ian Gallagher, and I trust the program today Will be a blessing to you. In a moment, we'll have our hymn at Calvary, and then we're turning to John chapter 8 Neither do I condemn thee. Well, here's a message for sinners, a message for those who are under a burden and guilt of sin. And today we begin with Psalm 11. In these uh, devotions, we're looking at Psalm 11 and the verse 3 today If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do. Well, firstly, let me read the three verses together, and then we'll get the connection. In the Lord put I my trust. How say ye to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For lo, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow upon the string, that they may privily shoot at the upright in heart. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, praise God, the righteous can do a whole lot. And the best way to divide this psalm is to divide it right into two parts. Verses 1 to 3, David is quoting what his so-called friends are advising him to do. They are telling him to flee. Uh, They told him that the enemy is too strong. And they told him that the foundations of society are just falling apart. There is a time to flee and there is a time to stand. We need discernment to know when to stay our ground. You know the story of William Tyndale who fled England and moved around Europe for his safety until finally he was caught and executed at the stake. On the other hand, Martin Luther would not run from his enemies and went at great risk of his life to the deed of worms to defend the gospel. Now, we want to answer the question of verse three. What can the righteous do? Now, firstly, let us think of foundations which are immovable, of which we need not fear. These foundations will never move. The Bible, well, the Word of God is inerrant, infallible, and praise God, indestructible. It's the living Word of the living God. The gospel itself, because it's not premised on man, but on the work of Christ, which is finished. When Christ cried it on the cross, it is finished. Well, praise God, no one can undo the redeeming work of the Lord Jesus. The salvation of a soul is another foundation that cannot be destroyed. When a man is saved, his sins are washed away, his name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, he is given grace to serve the Lord, then he is God's child, and that will never change. Our name will not be blotted out. We have the promise of eternal life, which cannot be denied, whether it be by sickness or death. Indeed, for the Christian, death is only the gateway into glory. So there's the foundations that cannot be moved. Now think of the foundations which may be destroyed. Well, there's a Christian's own testimony before men. And no doubt uh, we can blot our copy and we can make a mess of Our testimony by falling into the world and sin. And sadly, some Christians lose their testimony. And it takes a generation, takes a lifetime to regain it and to prove that you're really earnest for God. A church's usefulness by apostasy. Yes, churches depart from the truth. They give up the doctrine, they give up Christ, they give up the supernatural of the Bible, and before long, they are in the depths of apostasy a seminary's foundations of holding to the truth and the faith there are unfortunately many institutions that were set up to teach men the gospel but now they are teaching them heresy and ungodliness teaching them the way of sin instead of the way of purity and what a tragedy even here in canada of those institutions that are now promoting the devil's message rather than the light and the truth of the gospel. Then, as society's Christian heritage, we think of the failure of the church. It soon leaves society godless. The state of education is based on humanism and evolution, and the foundations of Christianity can therefore be eroded. Church attendance by young people is falling away dramatically in this country. The law of God is no longer the basis of morality. Rather, it is the whim and the wish of public opinion. Truly, there is a danger of these foundations being destroyed, and we are facing a crisis in this country where true biblical Christianity is not only in the minority, but considered unsuited for the 21st century. Tolerance is the new message, but we need to stand up for Jesus and to proclaim his wonderful truth. This is Ian Golliher, minister, pastor of our Free Presbyterian Church here in Cloverdale, and each day we're on the program to bring you the message, five in the morning, five in the evening, and I trust the Lord has ministered to your heart. We're turning now to our message in song, and then to our theme today on Go Thy Way and Sin No More. Thank you for joining with us on the program.
1: Was free, and there was to me. There, my burden so but covering. By God's word, at last, my sin. I Brought it
0: John chapter 8 again. Well, that was a long hymn and everyone sang it very well. Please don't think it was the preacher's device to wear everyone out before we get to the preaching. Uh, I hope that you will have an appreciation for the pew and that you'll be glad to sit for a while. Uh, At least you have that opportunity. Now, today we're turning to John chapter 8 and we're going to look at this incident of this woman who was rescued from almost certain condemnation. Firstly, I have a parallel story to share with you. Many years ago, a group of holy men who went to the desert to pray and to learn to be totally dependent upon God in an age when many people thought that materialism was the mark of success. And I think that age has returned. They developed what they called uh, the Desert Fathers, a lifestyle, an alternative, and began to reform a church movement. One of these men made his home in the wilderness, and he was known as Abraham, or more affectionately known as Abba Abraham. And for nearly 50 years, he dwelt in the desert places, ate no bread. He ate no meat. His life was simple and quiet. One day, his only brother died, leaving an orphan daughter called Mary. Abba Abraham adopted Mary and housed her in an outer room of his own cell. And through the small window between these two rooms, he taught Mary many of the Psalms and many other passages of the Bible. And for 20 years, Mary lived side by side with her uncle and continued in that life of devotion to God. One day a monk visited, or at least he was a supposed monk, and he came to visit, but he was overcome by desire for Mary. And before he left, sin was committed, and poor Mary was left feeling the awful shame of her guilt. Silently, one day, without speaking to anyone, she left, and she went out, hoping never to be discovered again. Her uncle Abram was greatly grieved when he discovered that his niece was gone. And after two years, he discovered where she was and exactly what she did. And he sent someone to bring back more information and find out Uh, all they could. And when the friend returned, Abram developed a plan to bring Mary back. And he disguised himself as an army officer. And he went to the town and went into the brothel where she was now dwelling and working. He went in there and with a rough voice, he shouted, there is a girl here that I want to see. And he entered, and for the first, for a while, he set eyes upon Mary. Continuing to disguise himself, he said with a loud voice, I have come a long way for the love of Mary. Abram invited the woman to join him for a meal, and after... He had tasted meat for the first time in 50 years and had a sumptuous supper. He joined her in her room. She began to unloose his laces, to untie his shoes. And then in his most tender, soft voice, he said, I have come for the love of Mary. And immediately she understood that this was her uncle. And you can understand her heart was filled with the deepest shame. And at first she resisted any idea that she would return back with her uncle again. But he began to tell her the stories of the Savior's love and pardon. He told her the story of the woman who came after great forgiveness to wash the Savior's feet with her tears and her hair. I think it very likely that he told her this story of the woman that was taken in adultery in the very act. And eventually the girl came to appreciate the pardoning nature of her Savior And returned with her uncle to a life of devotion. In traditional history, she was given the name of Mary the harlot. That seems a difficult name to bear, but really it's not much different from the name of this woman that we read of in John 8, the woman taken in the very act of adultery. Now, this Bible story of the woman caught in the very act of adultery and brought out to the lord to be judged gives us hope today that the very vilest of sinners can be saved and be brought into a new life the sad thing is that these pharisees they held out absolutely no hope for this woman and their plot and scheme was to involve the lord in stoning her to death And we learn from this that apostate religion has no gospel, has no answer to the deep-seated plague of sin in the human heart. But in this account, we see that this extols the Lord Jesus. They brought this woman to our Lord to judge her. But in reality, when He was all done with his interview and he gave her the command, go and sin no more. We see that the Lord turned the tables and this woman was marvelously delivered from condemnation and set free. Our Lord was caught in a very literal catch-22. If he was to set her free, then he was not keeping Moses' law. If he was to condemn her and join in in the stoning, what kind of a savior would he be to guilty sinners? And what of the others, the many to whom he had said, thy sins are forgiven thee? As I look at this account, I see that the Lord displays his power as a savior in three ways, by upholding God's law. And you can understand that any Savior that is going to deliver a man, woman, or young person from the guilt of sin, he cannot just undo or neglect the law. And the Lord Jesus weaved this in. He also did this by silencing all her accusers. Now, if you're going to call yourself a Christian today and say, I am sure of heaven, You do not want anyone to appear from around the corner, point the finger, and say, You deserve the wrath of God. This woman was delivered from all her accusers. And then, lastly, as we've already noted, the Lord saved her. He extolled himself as a mighty savior by giving her the command and the power to go and sin no more. I want us to look at these three things here today. The first one then, that the Lord saved this woman by upholding the law. As I mentioned, this is a catch-22 situation. If you do, if you don't, what to do? But the Lord stepped up and wonderfully delivered this woman. We know that she was caught in the very act of adultery there was no reason to go through a trial process. There she was as guilty, as large as life. And the law of Moses was very clear that for this very sin of adultery, that their person should be stoned. So, these Pharisees had precedent. They had the law of Moses on their side. They had their prejudice. They had no real love for the woman, and they brought her out that she might be judged and put to death. Now here is the thorniest theological knot that we will ever try to untie, and it is the issue, how can a holy God set a sinner free and still remain holy? and only the Christian gospel addresses this great challenge. Every other religion of the world either denies that there is sin or denies that there needs to be a savior from sin. But when God sent his son, he called his name Jesus with a very purpose and plan that he would be not the savior of the righteous, not those that are clean and good enough, but the sinful, the wicked, the fallen, that he would be a savior of sinners. Now, this is an ancient quandary, and it was Job who asked, How should a man be just with God? Can you answer that today? If you're a Christian, if you say that you're converted, saved, you're under the blood, under the gospel, you have found the answer. Just, of course, as the Lord Jesus found the answer and provided it here this day. Now, there's something very significant about the actions of the Lord Jesus when this whole situation was brought before Him. I want you to note in this passage that uh, verse 6, that they said, tempting Him. Uh, these Pharisees had no interest Injustice. They had no interest in the woman or showing, finding mercy for her. Uh, they were only out to destroy the name, the reputation of the Lord Jesus. But now look at the response, the reaction of the Lord in this most difficult situation. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. And all the while the pressure was building for this woman to be condemned, the Lord Jesus at this point never said a word. He just stooped down and with his finger began to write in the dust before him. Now, this is the only time that we read of our Lord Jesus writing. We don't have any book that he wrote. We don't have any letter that he wrote. But we, here we have a record of the Lord writing on the ground. Many suggest, suggest that this points to the law of God, because when the law was given to Moses, that it was with the finger of God that that law was written on those tables of stone. And I say that's a suggestion. I'm not going to build any doctrine on that. But I do note, I do note that just as the law was given to Moses two times— Moses received the tables, he went down the hill, he saw the, the idol calf he, in his anger, he smashed those first tables, and then God gave him a second set. And God wrote again with his finger and gave him those Ten Commandments. Now, if you look at verse 8, you'll see in this situation that the Lord Jesus again he stooped down and wrote on the ground." Now, I'm not one who tries to create mysteries out of the Bible, but uh, you will notice the action of the Lord Jesus that this created the deepest and the most profound reaction, because as the Lord was writing, and continued to write, and I'd only be guessing as how long this continued, I could imagine moments were flying by as the Lord was doing this, and these Pharisees were clamoring for their kind of justice and for uh, some action to be taken. What do we find here in this verse 9? And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one. Conscience began to work. Now, of course, the Lord had said, in verse seven, "He that is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone." And then the Lord stooped on again, continued writing. And in that building tension, in that drama, right at the temple, with the crowd at the perimeter, these Pharisees somewhere, center court, the woman, at the very middle, the focus of attention, the Lord Jesus somewhere uh, standing alone, and he stoops down and writes. And whatever he writes, we are not told, and I don't want to speculate. Some might say that he actually wrote out uh, the, thou shalt not commit adultery, or many other parts of the law. I do not know. But whatever he wrote, as he did so, deep conviction fell upon these Pharisees. It is a scene of, of melting the hardest hearts of men. Now, sin disturbs. And conscience, when it's awakened and informed, it plows deep. Such is the power of the law of God to convict. And the thing that makes you confess that you are a sinner is the law of God doing its work in your heart. You see, sin just doesn't condemn the outright profligate. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, the standard of God, the holiness of God. Every one of us here today, our conscience tells us that we are a sinner. Now, this law can only convict, it cannot save. The law cannot clear the conscience. The law cannot wash away defilement of sin. Its work is legal and its sentence is sure. That's why Mary, in that prior story, felt the shame. When she heard the tender voice of Uncle Ibram, what arrows of shame filled her heart. That's what sin does. This woman, you will note, put up no protest. She felt her own hopelessness. That's the state of the unconverted sinner. Now, this calls, of course, for the entrance of the gospel. We need a Savior who must fulfill this work of satisfying the law. And here is the whole plan of redemption, the whole plan of Calvary, the whole mission of Jesus, the one whose name is Savior. And of course, He has found a way. And the plan of redemption is that God sent His Son to be a substitute to die in our place. And as we go to Calvary, we see God's wrath poured out upon the innocent one, upon the just one, the just for or in the place of the unjust, that he might bring us to God.